Do you have your dad joke ready? I do. I, I, I made sure that was done well in advance. I fully expect for you to one day tell me that your father's name is Joke, because then you'll be like, this is my dad, Joke. It's a good one, actually. I might jot that down. <laughs> it's on the list. Hello and welcome to the EDH RecCast, brought to you by the best deck building site on the web for the commander format, EDH Rec. My name is Joey Schultz and I'm joined today by my lovely co-hosts. First up, the speedster whose article series takes you from 60 to 100, it's Matt Morgan. Joey, I was confused when you said I should call you later because I'll just call you Joey, that's your name. Your jokes are terrible, Matt. Next, the man whose articles remind you to look in the margins, Dana Roach. I'm oiled up, stripped down, and ready to go. Both of you make me very uncomfortable with your senses of humor. I'm Joey Schultz, <laughs> author of the Commander Showdown series. All these articles and more can be found at edhrec.com, along with some awesome featured community content, such as other Commander podcasts and gameplay videos. EDHREC itself is a fantastic deck-building resource that compiles data from deck lists all over the internet to provide helpful recommendations for new Commander decks. And, here on the cast, we're going to give that data a little more context. What is our topic this week, fellas? Democratic National Convention! I was going to start chanting, <laughs> lock her up, lock her up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, without getting actually political, we are going to talk about politics here on the cast. Specifically, what types of cards we enjoy playing and what kind of maybe tricks we pull in a game, what political things we often like to see in an EDH rec game or EDH rec game, excuse me, an EDH game. <laughs> That's how addicted I am to this site, you guys. I think we should we should actually change the name, I think. We should talk to Sheldon about that and we should just call it EDH rec from now on. <laughs> I mean, when you think about it, every game that we play is an EDH rec game. It just makes sense. Yeah, it's just what happens when you start, you know, doing a podcast and jotting down some thoughts and somebody publishes it. We, we made the change. It's done. Yeah. Yep, exactly. The format is now called EDH rec. That's a, uh, yeah, that, I'm sure that people will vote for that one for sure. They should. <laughs> I mean, they, uh, they we have the new commander committee, whatever they're called, just the rec committee now. Yeah, that's a really cool thing, actually, that we didn't get a chance to talk about on our last show. There are a bunch of content creators who are now going to be sort of a, a consultation group to the Rules Committee, which I think should lead to some maybe pretty exciting developments. It's nice to have that communication between the people who play the game and the people who help manage the format, who are also people that play the game. I just think that's going to uh, lead to a lot of good conversation. But before we actually get to the politics show itself with political cards and trickery and stuff like that, we have an announcement to make. Matt, take it away. Sure. So as of Monday, the, uh, the what, is, what is the date on Monday? The 28th. The 28th. As of January 28th, the Twitter handle, EDH RecCast, we had 1,000 followers. We fulfilled, you know, the, the, the limit that we needed to do the 10 foil signet giveaway. And here we are to announce it. So as we promised, one random follower. So whoever... Nick's Fleece Bamf is, uh, your Twitter, ha Twitter handle is Bamf Nix. Uh, you win. That is right. Yeah, you are such a Bamf with your fleece. <laughs> I don't, yeah. It was random, so. Yeah, the steam kind of ran out on that one, but it, I do oh, yeah. absolutely love that Twitter name. So Nick's Fleece Bamf, we'll get in touch with them. They'll get in touch with us. Send Yeah, send us a message uh, on Twitter. Give us your contact information where we should ship these to, and we'll get those out to you as soon as you tell us where to send them. Exactly. A foil of each signet. I think that might be um, Don Miner's Sock Puppet account. So he's I mean, just gonna, that, you can just keep that, the signets. That would make sense, you know, being the, the, the wolf in sheep's clothing. Right, exactly. Anyway, that's really cool, and we can look forward to some awesome giveaways in the future. But for now, congratulations to Nick's Fleece. Bamf, your name is indeed Bamf. Uh, before we get started, one last thing I want to ask. Guys, did you play any fun games recently? I got a few games in last week that were pretty good. There was one political thing I'll probably touch on later on that came up in a game. I'm not sure if it's political so much as gameplay um, style stuff, but I have two weeks in a row... I went infinite to win a game with my Vela deck, and I've never done an infinite combo in a game before, and I've done it two weeks in a row with the same deck. So I'm I'm not quite sure how to feel about that. I'm proud of you. How does your playgroup feel about that? Well, in, in, nobody really cared because in each case it was like a five or six card combo, and it wasn't thing, and it got tutored up. And a matter of fact, in both cases it was something somebody else enabled. Uh, one case it was because of an Ultra Dementia 
that milled the cards needed into the graveyard. And in one case, it was a memory jar that did the same thing. So that in that case, no one could complain because it was multiple cards deep and it was somebody else doing things that set it up. So we had talked about, um, on our New Year's resolutions, you know, trying to get outside our comfort level, and I have never done that before. So I, I did put a Nim Deathmantle in that deck because of the potential to do stuff with Vela, and I've hit it twice since then. That is uh, pretty nice. Yeah, New Year's resolution, check. <laughs> Already complete. Go infinite. I like it. I myself have gotten the chance to play Ravnica Allegiance. I actually played in Ravnica Allegiance Two-Headed Giant, and the card Ill-Gotten Inheritance is everywhere in Two-Headed Giant because it drains a life from each opponent and you gain one life, mm -hmm. which means it was just a, a meta of Ill-Gotten Inheritance, basically. I think at one point I saw four on the battlefield. Oh, wow. It was That's a lot. so many. Yeah. It was, it was a whole lot, but I also got to play with Ravnica Allegiance cards in Commander. Specifically, I got to try out Smothering Tithe in Kaneos and Tiro. Oh, how did that like, go? Well, I got to try it out for like a hot second. Okay. It lasted a single turn. <laughs> it immediately refunded itself because Kaneos and Tiro, everyone draws a card or can play a land, but if they can't play a land, they have to draw a card. So Smothering Tithe then gave me a treasure for everyone else, which was awesome. And then the person to my right immediately decided on their turn, no, that's not okay. So I didn't really get to live the dream that much, but it, it it's it's fun, and I, I hope that the next time I play it, it lasts a little bit longer. Well, I would say, too, that's one of those things. If a card immediately hits the field and then eats removal right away, that, that probably... That's a good sign. Yeah, that probably means somebody thinks it's really, really good. Yeah, exactly. Matt, how about you? Anything fun? Uh, I didn't get to play too many games, but I did take apart my Edgar Markov deck to kind of fuel the, the last bits of Tesa that I needed. But in doing that, I kind of opened the floodgates because now I'm, I'm looking at this stack of cards like I have like Toxic Deluge and Vampiric Rites and Humility and all my tutors and land tax that I want to find room in Tesa for now. So I'm in a deck building pickle, you know, like how Dana always talks about build your, your pile of 110 cards, 120 cards. Uh, I just counted. I'm at 134 cards that I need to <laughs> find room for because there's so many there. And like there are cards that I totally forgot. I, you know, after we talked about the token route, I, I immediately thought, well, dang, Bitter Blossom's probably pretty good in, in Tesa decks because oh, you lose your life. Deck, but really? Or well, yeah, any any black deck, really. But yeah, so I I don't know what to do. And then <laughs> I'm, I saw I was thinking about Archon of Justice, how it, it dies and you can destroy permanent and you double that, but then I, I thought, well, heck, I can just upgrade this and do Ashen Rider instead. So why wouldn't I? But then I got into Joey's question of, well, why not both? So now I'm just, <laughs> uh, this is a good problem to have, but I, I, I'm just looking at the stack of cards that like, I want to play this, but I don't want to cut this either. You know, Matt, if you need some advice on, you know, how to build a Tesa deck, you could listen to this episode of this podcast called the EDH Retcast, oh? where we talked about Tesa. Do tell. Yeah, I think there might be something useful on there. I don't know. Maybe. Al alternatively, you could just add 70 more cards and run Battle of Wits as your win condition. But then there's like some <laughs> rules committee thing about it. And there's like nine different rules errors with that sentence, Dana. Listen, <laughs> there's now an advisory committee. Maybe they'll make some changes. <laughs> You don't know what's going to happen. I think it was Shivan that said he uh, he wants to make the 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 decks a little looser so you can go over and play two hundred and one cards just so Battle of Wits can be a real thing. I I, I don't know if that's hearsay or not, um, but I certainly hope that for your sake, Matt, it is the case. The internet and then never you can forgets. run a blue card in your black white deck of two hundred cards. I, I I hope that you manage to get that done. Let's move on to our main topic. We're going to be talking about politics. We'll start off with hopefully just sort of a softball about the ways that we approach the idea of politics. I think that we each have kind of a different take. So Matt, do you want to start us off? How do you build with politics in mind? So I've gone on the record many, many times about how I don't like politics. I don't like the deals, scratch my back, you scratch yours, because that means you have to trust other people. And a lot of times magic players, they're, they're known for being true to their word. So I, I'm not a big fan of political in-game politics, but pre-game politics uh, I do kind of keep in mind. And, and so for me, politics isn't so much what can I do, how can I convince people to do this? It's how can I build my deck to address some of the issues uh, we, we've talked about a lot. Are certain commanders worth the amount of hate or how can I build this politically so that it's going to sneak under the radar just a little bit? 
but it's also going to be powerful enough to win me games. So when you say pre-game politics, I just want to clarify. Do you mean like you've colluded with someone before the game and you'll be working together? No. Or do you mean just... Okay, so, I'm so talking more, walk us through what you mean then. Sure. Uh, I think you're kind of working off your own reputation. I, I'm, I know, Dana, you've mentioned several times you're kind of known as you know a, a community leader, uh, a fairly good deck builder. So when you sit down at a table with people you've played before with, they're going to know who you are. They're going to know the way that you like to build your decks and you have that, that reputation beforehand. Absolutely. So when you when you bust out a new deck, what's that reputation going to say? Are, are you going to be able to address those concerns? You know, oh, people think Dana's going to be pretty good. Or are you going to be able to pull out a silly commander like Reki and get them once or twice? Joey, with your group hug deck, are you going to be able to have changed your win conditions around a little bit just enough so they don't expect this new card to be that thing that's going to win you the game as opposed to what won you, you know, the week before? Those are some mm-hmm. of those political pre-game actions, I guess, that I like to keep in mind. You know, I, I'm fully aware I'm kind of a spikier person. Some of my friends will make sure they bring up that I think primetime should be unbanned in Commander, which I still think is true. That's neither here nor there, though. But yeah, I like what you're saying there. There's something about the way that you're carrying yourself into the game that you should understand and which can therefore help you navigate politics as well. If you come off as a certainly spiky player, people might be more reticent to make a deal with you. Exactly. Or like you mentioned with my group hug deck, I do switch up the win conditions in that deck quite often because I don't think that I can get away with, you know, the same thing every time once people catch wise. If I win with an insurrection in one game, then people are going to be like, all right, well, then I'll make sure that you never have an opportunity for that card to be game ending. And then I have to switch out for something different. So that totally makes sense. Yeah. And one example that I I kind of went through not too long ago was I retooled my Moldrotha deck. It used to be combo crazy. How many two card combos can I smash into one deck? And then also Moldrotha herself, themself, whatever. Herself. Itself. A, a, a pile of mold itself. Uh, <laughs> Herself. But she has a reputation as, you know, she's a very grindy, value-based commander. How do I overcome that reputation? Because I switched it to a plus one, plus one counters theme deck. So how do I navigate that as, you know, I sit down, everybody flips over their commanders and they see Moldroth. They're like, oh, there's the collective groan, if you will. Everybody knows they're going to begin for a long game, lots of removal, lots of just slog. But really it's plus one, plus one counters. So is that commander worth the hassle that I have to jump through to, to make it still a fun experience to play. We talk about, you know, Prosh, Narset, Rafik of years ago. Are those commanders worth playing because you're going to have to power up your deck or power down it to make sure that you're, you're avoiding that hate pregame? So are there any specific things that you say or cards that you use to announce what type of deck you're using? What like specific trips, uh, tricks do you use to help people figure out where you'll be within the game? So for me, it comes down to communication. And I have long been a, a big advocate of communicating better at the table. But as soon as you know you flip over Commander and somebody sees Moldrotha, for example, I make sure I say, yes, it's Moldrotha, fully aware. But I'm actually plus one, plus one counters. It's kind of that that winding constrictor standard deck that I just wanted to play in Commander. And I make sure I tell them right away. And then the first few plays that I make, that's very, very important to proving to people that you're you're true to your word. Because how many times have you guys sat down at the table and, and somebody's been like, well, I'm not that Derevi player. I, I'm not really playing, you know, stacks and stasis prison, whatever. But they end up being stacks and stasis in prison and prison and, you know, you hate everything about them. For me, it's happened a few times, so make sure those first few plays back up what you're telling people about your deck. That's that's a big, big thing. Yeah, that makes sense, actually. So an experience that I often see, you know, other people sort of pulling particular friend of mine stands out as an example. It's not that he's being dishonest, but he is using language that is kind of coded to draw attention very directly away from him. For example, just saying, oh, I'm just going to cast this Avacyn or something like that. Well, Avacyn's kind of a big deal. That's actually quite important. Avacyn's but a very like big using, deal, yeah. Right, but using minimizing language kind of means that people might not entirely pay attention to it until it's too late. Or, you know, drawing constant attention to the actions of other people is another trick that I often see, which can kind of take you out of the spotlight. But those are important tricks to know about to kind of keep your stuff protected, but things that you should be aware of when other people are doing it as well, because you need to pay attention to what's actually on the board and not just what they're saying. Right, and another good trick that I like to do is Find those cards that are going to get you all those incremental value moves instead of the big splashy plays. Like everybody notices when you cast Expropriate or Silvala Stampede or any of those big 
eight mana spells, but are you going to cast, you know, Smothering Tithe and gain, you know, just a mana every turn? Granted, in Limited, it probably has a bigger target on its back and its reputation is going to stand out for itself once it hits the format, once it starts going into your pods. But are some of those, you know, Hardened Scales types of cards, are those going to get the reactions that casting a Throw Mock is going to get? Those are just some of those things that you need to keep in mind. It's not going to draw a bunch of attention to you. And you can, you know, in-game say, oh, well, I'm just doing these little 1-1 one, one counter things. This person over here, though, man, they're ramping really hard. Pay attention to them. So it's not so much right. making maneuvers for yourself in-game. It's just making sure the attention's going to other people. Then you can swoop in and win the game from there. I think that's a good lesson. Politics for your approach is very much about public perception, and that definitely matters. Right. I like that a lot. And if it is, And if it is public perception of, like, Man, Matt's playing his Narset deck again. Can that deck handle the hate? That's another big thing is you have to ask yourself is, if I play Prosh, is it worth it with that reputation that the commander has? So you really have to power up your deck to handle the hate. Yeah, okay. So public perception is a cool approach. Dana, how about you? I know that your take on politics is definitely a lot different than that. Um, I mean, there's a little bit of overlap with what Matt is saying. But the first thing I think uh, I should mention here, and, and I would imagine you guys would agree with this, one of the things that's really interesting about politics in Magic is it doesn't exist anywhere else. There's no other format, I mean, aside from, you know, some weird two-headed giant thing or, or what have you maybe. But your opponent in standard or modern or whatever, they're not making decisions based on how you treated them last turn or how threatening your commander is for the most part. Like there's that, that doesn't exist. Um, they, they don't feel generous based on a decision you made and then make choices in the game as a result of that. So politics is, is an entirely unique thing to commander for the most part. And I, I, I sometimes think people forget that and they, they don't approach it as the unique, powerful thing it is that's special to commander particularly. And I think they also tend to uh, maybe minimize or I don't even know if that's the right word, compartmentalize what is considered politics. You know, Matt mentioned the deal-making kind of thing. And I, I feel like when I talk about politics with most people, that's what they think politics is. In, in the average player's mind, I feel like they assume politics means I'll not attack you this turn if you blow this thing up. And to me, that's just such an insignificant part of what constitutes politics in Commander. For me, it's primarily altering the perception of like Matt said, like how people perceive you, but it's not even altering it. It's, it's, it's like if you alter the perception, people can correct that. Whereas if you are playing things that are genuinely not as threatening, there's no alteration there. Like I can tell people, and I have done it before that I intentionally am playing the second most powerful or second most scary thing in play. They can know that's what I'm going to do. And it doesn't change the fact that it's still the second most scary thing in play. Like, even knowing I'm intentionally not rolling out my Mystic Remora until somebody else has played their Rhystic Study doesn't change that, that it's a worse target. Like, even knowing I'm doing that, people still have to react the same way. And if they have a removal spell, the Rhystic Study is a much better target. So that's one of the things I tend to take in mind with that, that politics. Is I don't even worry about the perception. I just deal with the absolutes. And I intentionally play cards and play the game in a way where I'm not the person you can deal with until it's too late. Alrighty. And so, so that for me is a huge part of what constitutes politics is just dealing with that kind of threat assessment at the table level. Well, I just like, I think that that threat assessment is indeed a very big piece of, uh, you know, political actions within a commander game. And that really does kind of go into my particular take on politics as well, which might be a bit more of the classic quid pro quo style of politics, doing one thing for something else. Like you mentioned the example of, you know, oh, I won't attack you if you use your removal spell on that person's commander over there, that kind of deal. But a really important piece of that is evaluating which, like, which resources are most valuable to which person. You can't just say, oh, I won't attack you if you use your removal spell over there. Like, that person might not be afraid of you attacking them based on the other cards that are currently in your hand, in their hand that you cannot see. 
or there might be other, you know, someone over there on the other side of the table is running away with the game with their huge artifacts and their blight steel colossi and, and a bunch of stuff like that. But the person to your right might not be as afraid of those particular things because of all of the removal spells or all of the fogs that they have in their hand in the same way that you're afraid of that huge overwhelming presence on the other side of the board. Frequently, in fact, when I've played my group hug deck, I am kind of encouraging one person to become overwhelmingly powerful to take out some of my enemies, and then I will insurrection their stuff, for example. So like being aware of what resources are valuable to people is a super, super big important piece of that. That is, I think, one of my best things because that's how I can make those deals. If I know that one person over there is very afraid of some enchantment, well, I have to make sure that I suss that out very successfully before I start making deals. Yeah, I think that's a really important part of all this. And, and you kind of talked about people taking deals or, or making deals when they probably would have done it anyway. I think that's the kind of thing that people don't really think about. They're like, well, I just made a deal yesterday with a guy in a game where I agreed to destroy this thing and he agreed to not attack me. So I'll see politics. And what you don't think about is the next level. Like, what did that person care in the first place? Was that really a deal or did you just think you made a deal? And even if it was a deal, the person probably took it because it was beneficial to them. They didn't do it to be nice they took it because you gave them an advantage, which is something you need to be really cautious about because presumably, assuming you're playing with good players, they took the deal because the side you gave them was better for them probably. Right. And it also goes back into the thing that you were saying as well. If my particular win condition that I've drawn in my group hug deck is the insurrection, if that's the thing that I'm going to go with for this way to win, then I have to make sure that the person with the overwhelming board presence never catches wise that that's the way that I plan on winning by using their creatures, because then they would alter the way that their strategy works so that they could deal with me not being able to insurrection them successfully. Or if alternatively, I've drawn treacherous terrain and I'm going to use that spell a couple times, then people might be, you know, a little bit more wary about how many lands I'm providing the rest of the table because then that becomes the way that I'm winning. I'm using treacherous terrain and dealing damage via all of the lands that they have. So, yeah, you're the the perception there and also making sure that your strategy isn't that no one catches wise to it. That's a really good observation too. Well, and even things like the the quid, quid pro quo thing we kind of talk about with howling mine we've discussed in the past, but the one I've seen used a lot um, lately is field of ruin. Where you say, well, you know, it's a political card because I'm going to blow up that Cabal Coffers and then ramp those other two people a basic land and everyone's going to like me. Like, eh, are they? Like, are they going to all, is, is getting an extra land going to change their decision making? Are they going to not win the game because you gave them a land? Are they going to not kill you because they gave you land? Are they going to kill a weaker opponent versus you because you got one land? And if they do, like if the person is willing to let you, who's a larger threat, live and kill a weaker threat in the first place. Does, I mean, someone who's making decisions like that, did you need to play politics with them in the first place to beat them if they're making those kind of terrible decisions? <laughs> right. I think that's also kind of why cards like the Curses never ended up being as successful. First of all, combat doesn't happen very, very much, especially when people start optimizing their decks. So the Curses that reward people for attacking certain players, that can be a little dicey. But it also, you know, those Curses don't always provide a reward that everyone at the table is universally looking for. One of them might provide you a zombie, but, you know, maybe someone who's playing more of a controlling deck or something like that doesn't need that creature token. Or maybe the Curse will provide you a, a treasure, but they're actually fine on mana. So that's another thing there, just paying attention to what those resources are. Well, and also like if some, again, if someone's going to alter their decision making based on, you know, getting a 2-2 zombie token, like I was going to kill Bob this turn, but I'm going to kill Stacy instead because I get a 2-2 zombie. Well, I don't know. If, if someone's making those kind of decisions, you just probably didn't need to have a curse out to, to kill them <laughs> in the first place because they're just making bad decisions. Yeah, yeah, I can see that too. You the the cards that you use when politicking do have to provide pretty powerful benefits in order to actually be used for successful styles of politics, which I think is a good transition for us to talk about our top five political cards. We've each come up with a list of five cards that we enjoy from a politics perspective in EDH, and we're going to share them with you now. Matt, how about you get started by telling us the number five card on your list? So the number five card on my list. It's my list is more centered around cards that look or they don't really look political, but they actually play out fairly political. Uh, number five, I cheated. It's the Tempt Cycle, 
So Temple of Vengeance, <laughs> all those kind of cards that came out in the Commander Precons a few years ago. It's a way just for you to get a little bit of advantage for yourself, but you know, you might see, you know, your buddy Bob over there, uh, he's struggling a little bit. So am I going to play Temple of Vengeance, give him a few creatures uh, to help, you know, stabilize his board state, buy him some time. Granted, everybody else is going to be able to, you know, attack him with those creatures they might get. But I think just that cycle in general, you can use it to kind of further your advantage, say, hey, if you need some lands, Temple of Discovery. So maybe, you know, see somebody that isn't, Missing, or they're missing some land drops. So doing something like that, that might be a way to sneak some politics in because you can just say, hey, I don't have to cast this, but you know, if you want to back off attacking me for a few turns, I can help you out. I think also an important thing to note about those cards, particularly Tempt with Discovery as a, as a good example, occasionally politics can hinge on not just that, you, oh, I gave you insert reward here. It's not just the idea that I gave you a thing that's going to make someone maybe act more kindly to you in a game, but there are some cases where letting someone else get that land allows them to play at all, and that is something that maybe can work towards good graces in your favor, but also given that they, you know, if you're at a pot of four people, if you give someone an extra land which allows them to, you know, more comfortably get back into the game, well, you know, they're going to be hitting you probably one third of the time because they have three opponents. So if you help them play a little bit more, you are increasing the likelihood that you have another player at the board who's going to be hitting people that are your enemies. Yep. Yeah. I, you, you're also letting the person be the one who draws the board wipe that they couldn't have put otherwise too. So there's risks to that as well. But there's, yeah, definitely situ- <laughs> but there's, but there's situations where the opposite is true and where you definitely want one more warm body that's able to absorb some blows. So it's six one half dozen of the other. All right, Dana, what's your number five? My number five is Skullwinder, which is a uh, Death Touch Snake. It's a one three for three mana, and when it enters the battlefield, you return target card from your graveyard to your hand. Then choose an opponent, and that player returns a card from his or her graveyard to his or her hand. So basically, it's Eternal Witness that affects one other person. Uh, the reason I like Skullwinder, and this is going to kind of be true of a lot of the cards on my list, is it looks like a political card, but it really isn't for the most part. Most of the time, it's just an eternal witness because I'm going to pick the person whose graveyard I just scavenger ground or whose graveyard I just bajuka bogged or who just has you know two lands and nothing else and I just don't care. But on occasion, it lets me say, hey... That person just played a blight steel, and you've got a source of plowshares in your graveyard. So I'm gonna I'm gonna hook you up, buddy. But that's that's not I mean that's political, but it's not. They're just doing what I want. So it just looks <laughs> like I'm being political, but it, basically I'm just getting a card back and I'm killing a blight steel. Is all it does. I mean, so a lot of these cards are gonna kind of be that way. They're gonna be cards that maybe pretend to be political, but they're just ones that help me. I mean, I think that's the essence of politics. Yeah, though, I mean, this Dana. is kind of like like. This is if Paul Ryan was an EDH player. These are all cards he would pick. <laughs> oh, man. We're not going to get any flack for <laughs> no, that, not at all. I'm sure. Not, at all. not from the Wisconsin guy, too. <laughs> okay, but that is a good pick. That's one that I've also been playing around with. Should I use Skullwinder? Should I not? Sometimes it can be dangerous, especially, and this is one of those things about political cards. A lot of political cards will let an opponent do something. But once you get down to those final points of the game where it's just you versus one other person, letting an opponent, which is your only opponent now, letting an opponent do something can be very devastating. So I think that might be one of the things that makes me hesitant about a card like Skullwinder. Because once there's only one enemy, that's kind of a problem. And they don't have to follow their end of the deal. They can say, I'm going to get that Path to Exile and hit that Blightsteel, but they don't have to do that. They can just agree, sure, pick me and I'll get it. And they could take something else entirely. So there's, there's nothing binding them to that choice. Mm-hmm. True, but I, I do think like the binding part of that might be something that people would call social contract. For like sure. if someone deceives you, you're not going to give them any more rewards in the future. That's for sure. That is definitely true. Yeah. All right. I like that pick. We'll move on to my number five, and that's the card Crown of Doom. This is a three mana artifact that says whenever a creature attacks you or a planeswalker you control, it gets plus two plus zero until end of turn. That sounds terrible, which is why it also has the clause, pay two mana, target player other than Crown of Doom's owner gains control of it, activate this ability only during your turn. I'm a really big fan of this card in a way that I did not expect to be, because I've tried out some of the curses, which, you know, they'll reward player by letting them draw a card or get a treasure or something like that. But the thing that I appreciate so much about Crown of Doom is that it does scale per creature that attacks the person who's wearing it. And I also kind of like how 
direct it is. I like that it paints a target on one person, but that person also has the chance to then retaliate. So that way you're not just picking on one other person. And that's another issue that I had with the curses. Once that person gets attacked a whole lot, they're probably not going to be in a position to get back into the game. But Crown of Doom allows the person who's getting picked on to then pick on someone else and get back into it too. And I like the fussing that that can kind of cause. It's showing up in about 1,531 decks, and I bet you guys will not be able to guess which commander runs Crown of Doom most often. I don't even know. I would guess maybe a precon one because I was in a precon, but I guess I don't even remember what deck it was in. I believe it came in the original Duretti precon, but I'm not honestly positive. Man, Felden. Any guesses? Felden uh, was in that deck, so I would guess Felden, but that's entirely for that reason. I, I have no idea if that's remotely close or not. Matt, any guesses? I have no idea. I, I've never even seen that card at a table, so you are asking the wrong person. <laughs> uh, so... I expected Crown of Doom's number one commander to be Queen Marchesa because crowns, but also she likes making a lot of tokens to totally smash people. But the number one commander is actually Zedru the Greathearted because you're giving oh, one sure. of your permanents away to someone else, which will always net you more rewards. And I think it's a great fit. There. That makes sense. Yeah, but it's just it's kind of a neat thing that I think the plus two plus zero per creature can indeed incentivize enough people to start attacking. And it has that nice push and pull of the person who's getting picked on still being able to get back in the game, which I think is pretty cool. All right, Matt, we're cycling back around to you. What's number four? So, number four, it's actually an interesting one that I, 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 I've I toyed around with putting in to any of my blue decks, but it's Chain of Vapor. So, oh, Chain of Vapor yeah. is an old, old legacy card. It's, it's, and I'll read it because it's not, it wasn't a pre con, but it doesn't get a lot of play. It's only in 5,000 decks. So, and it's confusing. It is a little confusing, yes. So, Chain of Vapor is an instant for just one blue. And it reads, return target non-land permanent to its owner's hand. Then that permanent con- that permanence controller may sacrifice a land. If the player does, he or she may copy this spell and choose a new target for that copy. So you bounce an important permanent. Somebody's attacking you, bounce their Blightsteel. They can sacrifice a land and then bounce any other permanent and keep that chain going. Then likewise, if they right. do that, then somebody else can sacrifice a land, keep it going, keep it going, keep it going, etc. Uh, it's actually part of a cycle. Back from Onslaught, I want to say, like Chain of Acid was destroy target non-creature uh, permanent, and then you repeat the cycle. Uh, stuff like that, it, it gets political because you give somebody a chance to get something off the board that's important to them to be gone. Uh, so Chain of Vapor is one that I really, really enjoy seeing. I want to play it more than I do, but I'm always afraid of it backfiring and that that's not... The most fun, but it is interesting to kind of see the social experiment of what on the board is affecting this person the most. That's a cool one. And you're right to point out that there is an inherent risk with a lot of cards that read so politically because they have a chance to backfire. They do. It's it's also just like a really strong card on its own. Even if there's no political shenanigans going down, it's a one mana boomerang. Like that is really strong in a lot of decks, and, and I believe it sees a good bit of CEDH play as a result of that. I wouldn't really? Yeah, I believe so. I did not know that. Because you also get the yeah, bonus of doing some shenanigans in CEDH for like, you know, you, you play your bunch of Candelabra for one and then replay it and, you know, double your mana again. And so there's things like that in Storm decks or... Um, I've seen it used in black-blue decks with Necropotence where you, you know, Necro 25 cards and then bounce Necropotence back to your hand with it. So when you discard, your cards will get exiled and you Yogg's Will next turn. So there's a bunch of other shenanigans that work with it in addition to just being kind of a weird political card that you can get extra value out of. Nice. Well, no wonder Matt likes it. It has multiple applications, and Matt does like those cards that sort of look political but aren't and aren't political but look it. Like, it's just kind of neat. So, Dana, how about you? I'm going to go with another card that's, you know, selfish and just looks political and isn't, and that's Concordant Crossroads, which is a one enchantment, one uh, green mana enchant world, and all creatures can attack and use abilities as if they were summoned, as if they began playing your turn. So basically it gives your stuff haste. Yeah, that's that's easy for, for a single green mana, um, but it's everybody. It's it's so it's a it's an effect that affects all players, and the reason it's semi political is you know there's been plenty of times when there's been a person about to pop off and we need to kill them, and I can reveal it from my hand and say, hey, if you can get through damage next turn to you know deal with Bob, I can drop this to give your guys haste. 
So in that regard, it's political and I've used it that way. But I only do that in like an emergency <laughs> situation. Most of the time, it's just something I play on my turn when I'm going to win the game. So basically, yeah, it, it's pretty efficient to give all of your stuff haste yeah. out of nowhere in a green deck or, or, you know, hit it off of a big Genesis wave or something. Mm. Um, so it, it's a really, really useful card that gives me the option to to be political with it. But that's not what it's in the deck for. And when I'm using it in that way, it's because it's really beneficial to me. I'm like not doing something to help somebody else. I'm doing it to help me and acting like I'm not. Well, that's an important thing to remember as well. Whenever anyone proposes any type of political deal at all in any EDH game, they're asking for that because it will benefit them. Absolutely. That's always a thing to keep in mind. No one's being entirely generous of spirit unless they're playing some type of Feldegrift deck. And then they just super can't be trusted for different reasons. But usually when people are coming up with deals and making stuff, it's because they want a certain thing to happen, which means that you probably have more you know, bribing power with them. You have a bit more agency in that discussion if they're bringing some type of deal forward because it means that they actually want it. So don't let them trick you into thinking that you're the one who wants that thing more than they want it because that they wouldn't have brought it up otherwise. That's a cool one. I like it a lot. My number four, we'll move on to Naya Charm. This is a really cool instant. It, it does cast, in fact, it costs Naya, that's a red, a green, and a white, for an instant that lets you choose one. Naya Charm deals three damage to target creature, or return target card from a graveyard to its owner's hand, or tap all creatures target player controls. This is probably one of my favorite spells just because of how versatile it is, and the more versatile a card is, frequently the more political that card can be. One of my favorite things to say about politics sort of in its defense is that everyone does secretly use politics without kind of thinking about it, and a removal spell can be very, very political, just as political as a card like Tempt with Discovery, because they're going to use that as they, they can use it as a sort of bargaining chip in different ways. Instant speed interaction is very important for that reason, and Naya Charm nails it on all of those levels. It can take out a creature, or it can get you back a card from your graveyard at instant speed that you might need and can shock people, or you can even save return target card from a graveyard to its owner's hand. You can give someone the specific card that you want them to get back, which can allow for political dealing, sort of like Skullwinder, only you've picked which card. And finally, you can also tap target creatures, tap all creatures, target player controls. You can stop someone from attacking, or you can stop someone from blocking, which is especially huge. I really love this card. Yeah, that's another one of those cards that's just really good in general, too. Like, even if you're not being political with it, it just does so many useful things. Yeah, it's currently seeing play in almost 4,000 decks. Its top commander is Saskia, which is maybe political, but also maybe not, because she's just interested in punching people, and this is a great way to make sure that you can do it, and it can be a great way to help other people punch other people too. I really like Naya Charm a whole lot. Matt, what's your number three? My number three is a card that, uh, it's it's a very Dana-ass card. It's, it's kind of like Berserk, one of Dana's favorites. Um, Kessig Wolfrun is one yeah. of my picks. So Kessig Wolfrun, hey, hey, yeah. it's, it's one of those cards that you can use. People always think, well, I'm going to buff up my own creature and, and push damage through. You don't have to use it on your own creatures. That's one big thing that people kind of seem to forget is you can use Kessig Wolfrun. You can use Berserk on other people's attacking creatures. So say somebody else is going to do your dirty work and they're attacking Joe Bob across the table. Well, they're going to chump block him for days, but drop a Kessig Wolfrun, you know, put five mana into it, push that damage through you might knock them out of the game and that's they're you know getting rid of the biggest threat even though you're not the one that's able to do it cards like that it turns into a kill spell in some situations it turns into a player kill spell it's just a very versatile card it's a something that you i think a lot of people think of combat tricks as only being being able to affect their own creatures and that's something that i think Kessig Wolfrun Berserk several other I mean any combat trick really as long as it says target creature not target creature you control you can go do all sorts of different things with it. And I think that's something that a lot of players seem to forget. That's something we've seen with one of your pet cards, uh, Dana, the card Hatred. Yeah. Yeah, same thing. Or like Tainted Strike even functions a lot the same way where ideally you're using it for yourself, but you have the option to use it to on somebody else's swing to kill somebody that way too. And you can make a deal to do that. Yeah, there's a couple of those cards that work that way and I'm a fan of all of them. Yeah, that's a great pick, Matt. I really like that one a lot. I've used that in Kaneos and Tiro as well to surprise someone's commander just became lethal and you didn't expect it just from my innocent pile of lands over here. That's a cool one. But it's, it's really fun crop rotating into that too because it's a surprise oh, combat yeah. trick. 
You're welcome, Joey. Excellent. That's so cool. All right, Dana, what's your number three? Uh, my number three is a bit similar to Kessa Golfron. It's Duelist Heritage. It's an enchantment for uh, two and a white. Whenever one or more creatures attack, you may have target attacking creature gain double strike until the end of turn. Battle Mastery is an aura that grants double strike. And granted, it's double strike all the time. So I guess as a blocker, you also have it as well. But it costs the exact same thing for Battle Mastery. Battle Mastery is in like 5,000 decks too. And it's much easier to get two for one. Duelist Heritage, you have to have a sweeper out to deal with it or specifically target it versus targeting the creature. So it's really good just as a way to give one of your creatures double strike. I think it's almost playable if that's all it did. However, the ability to give... So it's not just one... It's not just a creature that you control. It's any creature that's attacking, you can have it get double strike. Just one, but still, similarly to talking about doing that with like Berserk or with Kessick Wolf Run, when one of your opponents is getting swung at, you can still give that creature double strike. It's really, it it has kind of that make-believe political thing again where you're only going to do it when it's useful for you, but there's just, there's almost no downside to it. You have it there available for your creatures when you're swinging and want to proc double abilities or do double damage. And then as an added bonus, you can act like you're being magnanimous. I'll help you out, buddy. I'll give that thing double strike and take him out when you're only doing it when it's useful for you. Yeah, that's such a cool one. I try to put that one in decks whenever I can as well. I think that's a very underrated white card just in general, but I like its political applications a lot. Yeah, and and its political applications too. Like It's not one for the most part that's going to bite you in the back either. You just don't use it if it's risky or... You do use it when it's beneficial, and it, it's other than that, you're just using it for your own creature. So there's really not a lot of chance for a clapback, short of you know someone dropping some kind of an instant spell that instant speed lifelink, or I think uh, Hunter's Insight draws cards based on damage dealt. So there's a couple things, but for the most part, it's just not going to ever back uh, crack back on you either. Yeah, and it is a may ability too. I, I think that's yeah. something you don't you don't have to do. Right. Or say somebody right. say somebody you know stabs you in the back and doesn't hold in, hold up their end of the deal, you can return the favors like, oh, if you attack this guy, it's a May and, and <laughs> you know, be smarmy like that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like Crown of Doom, only you get to constantly choose the target. Like you can announce everyone, anyone who attacks Stacy over there. By the way, just side note, I like that we've come up with this idea of Bob and Stacy who are playing commander with all of us. Uh, but if everyone attacks Stacy over there, I'll give all, cre- like any creature who does, I'm going to give one of them double strike. So like, I, I like that there's a, a, a moving around element to that card I, as well. I feel That's- like Battle Mastery is the type of card, like one of your buddies like starts to like turn creatures sideways and they kind of look at you. And you just put your finger on Battle Mastery, like, mm-mm-mm. Like, you mean Duelist Heritage? Duel, yeah, that one. Duelist Heritage, <laughs> that one. But you just kind of like wave it, not really wave it, but just move it around and like kind of incentivize, hey, this is around, just so you know. Just very low key. <laughs> yeah, that's a cool one. My number three is also a three mana card from twenty uh, Commander 2016. That is the card Manifold Insights. So this is a sorcery for two and a blue. It says reveal the top ten cards of your library, starting with the next opponent in turn order. Each opponent chooses a different non-land card from among them. Put the chosen cards into your hand and the rest on the bottom of your library in a random order. So you look at the top ten cards, everyone has to give you a non-land card. And that's really awesome. Like in a you know, a four-player pod, you're going to draw three cards for three mana. That's pretty cool, but it does involve giving your opponents a choice, which is usually a really bad thing. That's why we don't play Browbeat in this format, because people are just going to choose what's best for them. And that is also true here. But what I like so much about Manifold Insights isn't just the fact that you can announce, like, when you put the cards out there, you can make deals with people to give you certain cards in exchange for things. That's not the only thing that I like about Manifold Insights. What I like is how much information it gives you. It reveals about every player, what they're currently most worried about on the field. And I think that's very, very important. You know, if one player, player A, gives me a mana rock, that might mean that they're pretty comfortable in their position right now, and they don't think I'm going to be able to do a whole lot with extra mana as a resource. But if someone else, you know, is fine giving me a counter spell, then that might say that they're kind of announcing they don't feel like they're doing a whole lot in this game, and they want me to point that counter spell in other places. So the types of cards that people give you can announce a whole lot about what resources are most valuable to them, and that is very key information that I like being able to use. Are you sure you're not a tournament player, Joey? You... Just that little diatribe right there. I feel like you would really like Legacy. I'm not sure that I'd be able to use Manifold Insights in a Legacy tournament there, Matt. Well, it is legal in Legacy. 
Uh, I suppose that's true, but that's a, this is one of those cards, unfortunately, that once you get down to there just being, you know, one opponent, it's not a great card. So that's why it didn't make it higher on my list. But when you play it at the right time, it is a fantastic card that gives you a lot of information and usually a lot of useful spells as well. So I super love it. All right, Matt, what's your number two? Number two, Piers Whim. I know Dana doesn't think this is a political card. It just reads, you get a land, everybody else loses something. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> but you can give people hope. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that is useful. Just, it, it's the best give, gift to give and then take away. Uh, Piers Wim is just the ultimate pump fake. It's like Michael Jordan <laughs> in the in the NBA Finals. Like, oh, 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 you almost had it. And then, you you sorry, your, your Cathars Crusade is gone. I'm not really sorry. <laughs> But yeah, it's just really, it's it's fun. Like if you really want to, I don't know why you would want to give them a land, but I mean, just at its face as that, that high floor type of card that Dana loves, Piers Whim is great. Get your own cradle, get whatever powerful land you have in there and blow up something of somebody else's and everybody else's. It's kind of like that wind graces judgment type of effect where everybody's losing something, but you're gaining something as well. But and it is kind of fun to, to dash people's hopes. I've finally got to cast it a couple weeks ago, and it was everything I was hoping for. Well, it's kind of like Joey said. Some, some, sometimes you need to have that other person be just enough of a threat. They're going to soak up a little bit of damage. And, I, and it makes sense to, to give them the land in that point in time when like you're looking over and you're like, oh, if that person has one more land, they're going to annoy the person who's leading the game right now. But I'm not worried they're ever going to be a problem for me. So like it makes like you know you can do that kind of political stuff with it where you're helping somebody out just enough to be cannon fodder for you. <laughs> be be careful though because some folks have the same attitude that you do Dana and if they see me helping someone else out then they're going to immediately you know put me as the sure, target absolutely. because I'm the one enabling. Absolutely. As they probably the should. <laughs> probably. Dana what's your number 2? My number 2 is a voting card. Council's Judgment, which is, I think, good enough to have seen some legacy play, I believe. It has. I've cast that many times. Uh, yeah, in 1v1, the voting cards, uh, that particular card You, you really don't, very, very, you're, so you're really stupid. not voting at that point. Exactly. Um, and, and basically, starting with you, each player votes for a non-land permanent you don't control, so it can't hit your stuff. And then you exile the permanent with the most votes or tied for the most votes. So again, this kind of looks like a political card, like there's going to be you know, decision-making and voting going down, but really you're only casting it for the most part when there's a really obvious target that you want gone, and then you might get something else you want gone at the same time. So that's how it usually breaks down is you drop it, you want that, you know, Rhystic Study gone, and you're fairly certain that one other person's definitely going to pick it because they're annoyed with it too, and then maybe you'll get some collateral damage along the way and take out one other threat. So I do like that card, but unfortunately, in my experience, I just haven't been able to get more than one thing with it. And while you can get something very important, I it, it being a sorcery speed is always what's kind of frustrated me. Well, there's also the risk, though. I've seen this happen with Council Judgment before, too, where if you're playing with really new players, they can badly screw up your Council Judgment. And you can oh, yeah. go to kill the thing that's the obvious threat, and they're like, oh, I'm going to deal with that Birds of Paradise. And you're like, wait, what just happened? And the next person's like, well, why not? It's a flyer. I don't like it either. Let's get that birds out of here. And I'm like, oh, no. What are you guys doing? So that can no, happen. we need to get rid of the blight steel. Right. So like, yeah. that kind of thing can happen. See, I, I have yeah. a really funny story is when I first started playing Commander, I didn't know that you couldn't vote for a card that wasn't your own. So I cast that when I was playing Sigurd and Ruby's like, okay, we're going to get rid of Sigurd. I was like, no. you what? <laughs> and, and I didn't realize I couldn't tell them, well, you can't vote for my stuff. You have to vote for somebody else's. So I definitely lost my cigar to that one time. I feel like Council's Judgment, for that reason, is kind of an improved version of Eye of Doom, which came out in the Commander 2013 set. That was an artifact that when it enters, it puts a counter on one permanent of every player's choice, but everyone can pick one of your cards, and then you can choose to crack the Eye of Doom basically whenever. But all that you have to do is play the Eye of Doom, and then everyone picks one of your cards, and you just wasted a card doing nothing. Yeah. Kind of blows. So it's nice that Council's Judgment has that right. It helps It helps when you read the card. I, I can <laughs> I can vouch for that. Yeah, reading the card does help explain Hot the card. Tech. I love that Hot adage. <laughs> All right, so my number two is a commander, actually. It's Zancha Sleeper Agent. 
One black and a red for a legendary creature, minion, 5-5. Five, five. Really great rate for three mana. As it enters the battlefield, you choose an opponent and they gain control of it, which I think is awesome because then Xantia attacks each combat if able and can't attack its owner or Planeswalkers its owner controls, which is really cool. You just gave someone a 5-5 five, five that's going to be attacking someone else, hopefully commander damaging them out of the game, but it gets even better. The person who you gave Xantia has a big risk to take on because any player can pay three mana and Xantia's controller loses two life and the person who paid the mana draws a card so everyone can actually drain that person and get resources off of them while that person is forced to hit people who aren't you this is just so so good i haven't built this commander myself because i have a lot of friends who have but it's oh, it's so much fun whenever i see it because the politics go crazy people are using them to deal damage using them to draw cards it's everything that i want politicking to do where the problem is over away from me and they're the ones who have to deal with it it's so good yeah, and if you're playing kind of a slow deck, you can just get domed out of the game with this pretty quickly. Oh, completely. And anyone who's capable of getting, for example, infinite mana can use Xantia's ability, paying three mana over and over again to drain that controller of Xantia completely out of the game, which is real scary. Yeah, it, yeah it, get- it's a really fun card to see, and I've I've got one Xantia deck in my shop that I see you know, relatively often, and it's always an interesting game. We're down to the final card. What is your number one favorite political card? So my favorite political card is one, it's kind of a favorite of the cast, actually. It's one of those modal spells that doesn't look modal. Disrupt Decorum. Uh, It's a sorcery that goads all creatures you don't control. So it's a nice fog effect. Say, you know, you're low on life. You don't want anybody to attack you next turn. Sure, attack everybody else. In the same way, you can cause all sorts of chaos, mess up everybody's plans by casting this and making sure that you live to untap the next turn. Well, for the most part, you're not going to die to creature combat, at least. Yeah, that card's excellent. It's so much fun. That was one of the big things when I took Edgar apart. I realized I'm putting it in Tesa, but then I can't run Disrupt Decorum. And that actually, like, it, it, it made me feel some feelings deep down. I was I was kind of sad to see that go. But I just put it in Valduk instead. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Disruptive Quorum is a super fun card. I have never not enjoyed casting that and watching it resolve. And it's one of those cards that it doesn't look like that big of a threat, but some people, they, they can't let that resolve because they, they know, you know, oh, if it's, a, if it's down to three players, well, shoot, we're going to attack each other. It's kind of like the Cruel Entertainment card from the Precons a few years ago, too. So much fun to watch. Right, especially because then, you know, once everyone's attacked, their shields are kind of down, which leaves you room to come sweep right in with a bigger blow. Exactly. And it has that Teferi's protection sort of feeling because you're taking a turn off knowing that no one's going to hit you. Mm-hmm. You're kind of pulling the pin on a grenade and tossing it into the room while wearing armor and knowing it's not going to hurt you. Yeah, that's an excellent card that any red deck can make excellent use out of, and it can lead to some definite political trickery. But even if it doesn't, you feel protected. So that's a really great one. Exactly. I love it. Dana, your number one. What is so it? So my number one is a specific card, but I'm, I'm kind of referring to, generally speaking, any card that works this way. Um, the one I'll mention is Executioner's Capsule, which is a single black artifact, and then you can sacrifice it for one and a black to destroy target non-black creature. So basically it lets you advertise that you're holding a Doom Blade in your hand, which, you know, you can do that with any with any spell you have out, but there's just something about having that sit there on the field so everyone can see it, and it's very easy to just when someone like has their giant bane slayer out that's wearing you know two swords or something for you to just say yeah, the, the person sighs and goes oh man and you can just say oh I'm not going to kill your bane slayer as long as it's not swinging at me. It's a, it, it's a it's a political card in that you're, you're steering tax away from you and you still have the spell available there to kill something when you need to kill it. So it, it's a it, it works really well as a deterrent while also letting people still do their thing to hit somebody else. Because it's one of those things I found people don't like being told 
they can't do anything at all. They're much more accepting when they're just told they can't do it to you. That's a good point, actually. People might get frustrated by seeing like a, a ghostly prisoner or propaganda style effect, which says like, oh, they're very, very difficult to actually hit me. And that that wall can really frustrate folks. But when you have, you know, just a slight rattlesnake out there, it's not like they can't do something. They're just encouraged to go in a different way. I love that. That rattlesnaking type of effect is a really great political maneuver. Yeah. And I, I think this extends to a few cards. I think Aura of Silence is a really good one that sits out there and, you know, it, I guess it taxes everyone, which can generate some threat. But it's that thing where you're like, I don't have to blow up your scary artifact or enchantment as long as it's not hitting me. There's a couple of different things that kind of work that way. And I don't think you want to run too many of those rattlesnakes because then it becomes annoying. But I think it's a useful thing to sit out there and just let it stare somebody in the face, knowing that at any point in time you can blow up their thing. But it also gives them hope. It lets them think, okay, well, I will deal with this other person because in two turns, I'll figure out the Executioner's Capsule. I'll deal with that in two turns. But for right now, I'm just going to keep playing the game. Right. It gives you information if they decide to try and attack you. Yes. Then you'll probably know, oh, they've got an answer ready. And that gives you extra information as well. Yeah. And they might approach you with a deal if they see your Rattlesnake card. They might be the ones to kind of offer you stuff so that you'll use that spell on someone else's stuff. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, great pick. I totally love it. My number one card, we're moving on to the card Reigns of Power. This is two blue-blue for an instant. Untap all creatures you control and all creatures target opponent controls. You and that opponent each gain control of all creatures the other controls until end of turn, and those creatures gain haste until the end of the turn. This is seeing play in about almost 3,500 decks. Its top commander is Kaneos and Tiro, and this is probably one of my favorite win conditions because I frequently have no creatures at all. I'm not sure if it maybe looks immediately like a political card to everyone, but really the reason that I think it counts as such a political card is because of the way it forces you to play the game. And this was one of the cards that helped me understand the group hug deck style so well, because then I was starting to rely on my opponents, sort of like an insurrection style. I was learning to use my enemy's weight against them, and it shaped the way that I played the entire game, because I knew I was building towards this one particular card. So it's maybe not necessarily that this one card is itself a very political action, as much as it is that everything that you have to do before you cast it needs to have been very political before then. So it sort of just shapes the entire game. If I know that I've got this in my hand, then I'm going to act very politically in certain ways to encourage one person to become an overwhelming threat and then I'll sneak in and take all their stuff. And frankly, I can also kind of use this to clear someone's path of blockers or something. So there are also other uses there, but I just like the way that this one forces my play, my strategy to change in a really, really interesting way. You do have to be careful with it though, because you can't buy it in foil. So that's like not great. <laughs> <laughs> kind of bumps me out regularly. But yeah, no, it's a really great card. And it kind of works a bit like an Aether Eyes or an Aether Spouts in that, you know, people think they have a free attack on you and they might overcommit into just nothing, which is always something that feels good too, being able to let somebody overextend and then make them pay the price for that. Yeah, exactly. That's one of my favorite ways to win politically is to use my enemy's weight against them. And this definitely represents that. And so this is just a good symbol for me of how to play politically and to sort of not let your opponents know entirely what you're up to and the ways that you'll be winning. And uh, it's just, I absolutely love the way that this forces my brain to think of how to win in a new dynamic. And I just think that's so, so cool. So those were our top five political cards. Listeners, we'd love to hear what cards you think exemplify politics in Commander and what your favorite personal tricks are. But before we wrap up the show, we've got one more thing to do, and that is challenge some stats. Matt, take it away. So my challenge of stats this week uh, it's one that I think is going to see play eventually because of all the conversations I've had with a lot of people lately. It seems that they all say that they're playing it, but the numbers don't really back it up yet. But Crush Contraband is one card that I think is going to start seeing play a little bit more. Currently, as it stands, Crush Contraband is the number 23 most played card in Guilds of Ravnica. Not 23 That's overall, it? 23rd played card in the set. There are cards, so Thousand Year Storm is getting played in nearly twice as many decks. Price of Fame is getting played in more decks. Sinister what? Sabotage is getting played in wow. almost 100 more decks. So currently, Crush Contraband is played in 396 decks total. Everybody compares it to Return to Dust. It plays very similarly. 
Crush Contraband is always going to hit two targets. It's always going to be a exile target artifact, exile uh, target enchantment for four. Return to Dust, you have to cast it during your main phase to get that, but there's a little more flexibility. But the fact that Gateway Plaza is played in 200 more decks <laughs> yeah. is a little concerning, guys. Yeah, I love Kush Contraband. This card's amazing. Yeah, and I've had some conversations on Twitter with some people. Some people, everybody on Reddit says, I have already swapped it out. Well, the stats don't show us that, so maybe you should put your, well, don't really put your money where your mouth is because that doesn't make any sense in the situation, but... <laughs> I, I just think that the numbers are going to start catching up. We've talked about how Plague Crafter is the most played. Beast Whisperer is the number two played card from the set. But there's there's a lot of good stuff in the set. But for as much hype and as much comparison to the number six overall white card in the format that Crush Contraband got, I thought it would see a little better early returns than it currently is. Yeah, excellent, excellent pick. I love that you can get two targets at instant speed. Instant speed interaction is one of my favorite things, and that's what I... I like that flexibility more than the flexibility of sorcery speed return to dust. So I really hope that that one starts picking up its numbers. I think it should. And and that's a good point, talking about the return to dust comparison and sorcery speed, because the reality is return to dust is a sorcery speed spell 90% of the time, I would guess. I mean, there's, there's been times I've casted at instant speed to kill something in an emergency, but that meant you left four mana open, which is, it's kind of that a uh, wind grace's judgment kind of thing where you have to leave five open for it. And you're not in colors to necessarily want to leave mana open. It's kind of the same deal there where you're not very often returned to dusting for four mana to hit one target. Most of the time, it's just a main phase kill two things and crush contraband is a spell that you can legit use at instant speed. It's much easier to do that with a plan and take two things out than it is with return to dust where you're just almost always trying to get value out of it. I like it a lot. Alrighty. I'm going to challenge the stats next to the card that I'm looking at. It's sort of a small cycle of cards, but the specific example will be undying evil. This is a one mana black instant that says, Target creature gains undying until end of turn. Very innocuous, but I'm looking at this card specifically within Xantia Sleeper Agent, my number two pick for the political cards. What's kind of unintuitive about Xantra is that if it were to die and then come back into the battlefield under its owner's control, well, it would actually enter the battlefield again and then its ability, as it enters the battlefield, choose an opponent and they gain control of it, that would happen again. So even if you were to use a card like Undying Evil to save Xantra and then the Undying says you, the owner, would get be- get that card back, you actually can give it away again. So if people are going to wrath your Xantra away, you can actually use Undying Evil to make sure that someone actually keeps Xantra. And in that particular case, they get a plus one counter, which means that they're going to bring even heavier beats against your enemies. This is a really slick one-mana way to keep your commander attacking other people. And there's a few other effects that you can use as well, such as an unnatural endurance, a one-mana instant as devoid. It regenerates target creature and gives it plus two, plus zero. Or supernatural stamina is another one. One One-mana instant, target creature gets plus two, plus zero. And if it would die, it goes back to its owner's control. Well, then you'd again give it away to someone else. So those are just really nice, just how cheap they are, especially really nice ways to make sure that your commander stays on the battlefield rather than you having to recast it from the command zone and pay command tax. I think these are great picks, but... Undying Evil is only showing up in 11% of Xantia decks. I just think that's wrong. I think these are really cool ways to keep Xantia on the field. I like it. Uh, Yeah, I think those all make a lot of sense. Yeah, very straightforward pick, but it just lets you keep the beats coming. It's really, really cool. Dana, let's finish up with yours. Mine is an artifact from Commander 2018. It's only in 437 decks right now. Endless Atlas. It's only two mana to cast, and it's two mana to tap and draw a card. You can only act with this ability if you control three or more lands with the same name. So I would guess part of the reason is it's not in that many decks is because of that clause. You probably don't want to be running it. Definitely not in a three-color deck, but it gets kind of risky in a two-color deck as well. But I think if you're playing mono red or you're playing mono white, dropping an artifact for two mana is pretty easy to do. And as a mana sink for two mana to draw a card, that's really efficient in those colors. Yeah, I think that's actually one of those cases where you should be able to get some use out of that one. It looks a little minor, but I think there are definitely places where it'll be better than it looks. So Mind's Eye is one to draw a card, and you can do it repeatedly, but it costs five to drop it that first time, which makes it much a much more tempting target for one for someone to remove, and it's much more difficult mm-hmm. then to spend that five and then keep you know one or two or three mana free to draw cards when everyone else does. It also really really forces you to use that mana. You have to decide 
when they're drawing a card, if you want to spend your one mana to do it, where with, with Endless Atlas, you can just keep your counterspell mana free, although you're probably not playing it in blue, but you can keep your, you know, crush contraband mana free. And if you don't mm. need it at the end of the turn, then you can dump your two into it to draw a card. I just think in mono white and mono red and probably Boros, it's as good as most of the options you have, if not better. And I would definitely run it in most of those decks. Just make sure that you're conscious of the non-basic lands that you're running while you're Absolutely. running the Atlas. Like if you're running, you know, a, a 25 non-basic land package or something, you're just not going to get there very frequently. That's why I think its home is really definitely in mono red or mono white. But in the two decks I run it in, which are mono red, mono right, mono white, excuse me, I've always loved to see it. It's always been a really useful card. Yeah, and I especially appreciate what you said about it gives you the flexibility of paying that mana whenever you want rather than circumscribed like a mind's eye. I think that's an excellent choice. And sort of like some of the political cards that we named earlier in the episode, it does fly under the radar, yes, which can be very, very absolutely. helpful. And if someone wants to spend a removal spell on your, on your Endos Atlas, that's kind of a win too. Yeah, that's 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 definitely yeah. true. Actually. It's a low yeah. mana investment too. It only, like you said, it only costs two mana to right. get out. I, I I really like just the the opportunity cost is fairly low. So, guys, do you have any last minute thoughts about politics in EDH before we wrap up the show? I'll, I'll just kind of uh, reframe what I said earlier. Just think about politics beyond just the deal making aspect of politics. Think about it beyond just that level. And, and I think sometimes commanders designed with just that superficial level in mind, the things like the vow cards, where you're going to put it on a creature and buff it so it attacks somebody else. I think that's kind of a superficial way to look at politics in commander. I think it runs a lot deeper than that. And I think it, the more you think about it, the more you realize there's stuff there beyond just kind of that, that really obvious deal-making aspect. Yeah, definitely. There are a lot of cards that can help provide you with extra information, and I especially appreciated your guys' list because they remind people to look at cards that don't seem political but super are, and cards that do seem political but don't have to necessarily be so. With that, I think we're going to call this episode to a close. I'd like to thank my co-host so much for joining me, and if any of our listeners would like to get in touch with us, where can they find you all? So you can find me on the Twitters at Mathemus55, M-A-T-H-I-M-U-S-5-5. You can find me on Twitter at Dana Roach, and I am also online once a week. I'm at our show, Commander Central. And I'm Joey Schultz. You can find me at Joseph M. Schultz on Twitter. Special thanks to our editor for the show, Ken Peddle, also known as Kenish Norn. You can follow him on Twitter at Loader. That's L-O-A-D-3-R. Follow Idiotrek and the cast on Facebook and Twitter. Nick's Fleece Banff will be in touch with you to get that foil copy of Every Signet to celebrate this milestone of a thousand Twitter followers. And listeners, you can look forward to more giveaways in the future. You can contact us at EDHRECcast at gmail.com and find us on iTunes. And if you do, please consider leaving us a review to help other folks find the podcast too. This cast is posted every week on EDHREX community content spotlight section, where we feature as many other content creators as we can, from Command Zone to Commander's Brew to Commander Versus, not to mention new articles published every day by our own fantastic team of writers. We'll be back at you next week with more data and insights, but until then, remember, EDH wreck your deck before you wreck your deck. We have uh, tomorrow on Tuesday a projected high of negative 16, <laughs> and on Wednesday a uh, high of negative 12. I'm sorry, where do you live again? And then, of course, South Canada. Saturday and Sunday, we're looking at uh, mid-40s. What the South Canada? <laughs> Remind me not to go visit you. Oh, Wisconsin. It's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs>